I wrote that with Sue Riley, um, and I've never sung it before. <laughs> but it seemed perfect for today's, for today's talk. Um, we've been metaphysicalizing and interpreting and learning from the parables of Jesus the Christ this month. And we carry on with a few more parables. And I called this divine justice because oftentimes, I mean, I, when I was a kid and I was reading things, I was like, well, that's not fair. Well, that's not fair. Well, here's the deal. Divine justice is not fair. Divine justice is love. So I'm first going to read uh, Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift to the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and reconcile to them, then come and offer your gift. Ooh, sounds real judgy, doesn't it? But really, what this says to me is that whatever you're holding on to... <laughs> has got a big hold on you. You're not cast from the outside into the fires of hell. When you hold on to that anger, you are casting yourself there. When you hold on to that judgment, it is impossible for you to not hold yourself to a standard of judgment that makes you come up lacking over and over and over again. So that's the point to me of this parable at the altar. At the altar is the place where we go to give the best of ourselves. Maybe the altar is your place of work. Maybe the altar is your family. Maybe the altar is a special friendship. Maybe the altar is just the place where you give of your talents or your skills or your gifts. And what this is saying is if you are holding on to anger and judgments and resentment, your gift will not be pure. Not because someone else is judging it so, but because how can the pure gift come from a heart that's holding on to anger and resentment and judgment? And so what this is saying is let your heart free. Set your heart free. Whatever you need to do to set your heart free. Go make amends to somebody that needs to make amends to. Decide that you will forgive someone whether they deserve to be forgiven or not, but because you deserve not to be put in the prison of holding on to resentment. Do that, and then when you come to the altar with your gift, you come free and clear and relaxed and pure and able to be 100% yourself and not have to hide anything. How's that sound? Better than the fires of hell. <laughs> the fires of hell, how many of you have lived there? I, I go there fairly frequently and I'm the one who sends me there. No one else does. The good news is I go to the glory of heaven frequently too. And no one else sends me there. Love 
The love in my own heart sends me there. Love from outside of me can't take me to heaven. Only the love that is in here allows me to go to that place of heaven, that place of peaceful contentment, of sleeping well, of going through my day feeling light and not having guilt hovering over my head or shame waving underneath like, a, like in a sea cave or something. So the deal is judgment, name-calling, anger, anything that separates you from your own lovingness needs to be healed before you can fully express the true love that you are. Yeah? Here's another one that always bothered me. You know, in the prodigal son, I was the second son. I've always done it right. How come he gets the good stuff? That was, that's just, man, I've got that really deeply in me from childhood. And fair wages in the field. So this is Matthew 20. <clears throat> For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told him, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And then he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five o'clock, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing all day doing nothing? And they answered, because no one has hired us. You also go and work in my vineyard. Sounds like a good story, right? And then when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last only worked one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered to them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Did you not agree to work this day for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. I've heard that before, the last will be first and the first will be last. That doesn't sound fair, does it? But they agreed to work for a denarius. The prodigal, the second son could have killed a goat anytime he wanted to, but he chose not to. And what this says to me, it, this, is, this is so apropos of what's going on in our, in our culture, in our world right now. People who have agreed this is what things are like are not being, nothing's being taken away from them. But as we start to introduce equality 
to groups who have been on the fringes, somehow the people who have always had it all are getting really like, oh, that's not fair. You're going to take something away from me. You're going to take something away from me. You're going to take something away from me if you bring those other people up. Have we taken away anything except your ability to feel justified and superior? No. That is what our society is having trouble understanding. And blessings on you in here who are white men, <laughs> but you have ruled the world. You have ruled the world. All the institutions were set up by you to benefit you. All the culture and the mythology and the legends are set up to celebrate you. And then slowly, we're recognizing as a culture, white men are recognizing too, many, many, many. Like, oh yeah, I, I don't get to be that way just because I was born that way. Everyone should have an equal chance with me. But those who are fearful, those who do not know who they are. So it has nothing to do with being a white man. If you're a white man who understands that you are a child of God and so is everyone else then this is no threat to you. But if you're holding on to, I don't really know who I am, I am judging my worth by what happens out here. And when I used to be able to judge my worth as superior, and now I'm not being able to do that anymore, as people rise to my level, I am not sinking. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will lift you all up. If I be lifted up, you all get to come with me. My friend Tom Kimmel wrote a song called No One Gets to Heaven If Anybody Else Is Left Behind. Just a beautiful, beautiful thought, a beautiful expression of we are one. And when we, were for, and when we forget that, that puts us in a position of judging other people, of holding ourselves apart. We can hold ourselves apart, apart by being inferior and we can also hold ourselves apart by being above everyone. They're the same thing. It's arrogance and misunderstanding either way. Because the truth is, we are all on the same plane. We are all beloved of God. It's only our culture that tells us that some gifts are more important than other gifts. That some things that we contribute or that we were born with or have are worth more financially and in other ways than other people's gifts. That's our culture. That is not God. That is not Jesus. That is not love. And so on the face of it, what the parable is saying is that the landowner, it's all under his purview. He gets to be generous to anybody he wants to be. And he's not taking away anything from anybody. And when he says the last shall be first, maybe it was because he wanted the people who thought they were first to see, oh yeah, I don't get to be first just because I was the first one here today. Or just because the laws uphold something about me. That doesn't make it right for me to be first. And maybe I need to see that play out in order to know. Because really, if he just paid them their denarius and let them go on their way, he'd never know what he paid the other guys, right? So to me, the fact that that's in the story is very important. 
So the first shall be last because when the first understand who they are, they understand there is no last. We're all at the same table. You know, we tend to think of life as a ladder and we're somewhere on it and there are those above us and there are those below us. And what this is saying is no, life is a table and we are all invited to the feast. And whatever feast is laid, whether you sit there at the table all day or whether you come to the last minute, you come to your senses, right, at the last minute. You come to understand, oh, this love is for me too. It's not just for those people that I've seen sitting at the table. I have a place. I get to pull up a chair. I get to feast. And the whole feast is as much theirs as it is the one who laid the feast or the ones who were there first. <sighs> Take that in for a minute. Because there is this part of us that wants things to be fair, but our idea of fair is a little bit skewed. And God's idea of fair is that everyone gets the love they need. Everyone gets the love they need. Has it ever occurred to you if you saw someone getting more than you? that maybe that's because their need was greater? And that's the difference between equality and equity. I don't want to get political here, but equality means everybody gets the same. Equity means that everybody is brought to the same level. So someone who is a millionaire gets $100,000, and someone who is living in the gutter gets $100,000. That's equality, but it's not equity because the person living in the gutter can't even build a house for that. And the millionaire may have five and just use that 100,000 to charter a few jets. You know, who knows? I'm making up stuff. Jesus was better at parables than I am, obviously. <laughs> but you see what I mean? And so when we start to feel this idea of envy or jealousy within ourselves, it is really helpful to go, wait a minute, are my needs met? And if they aren't, what am I holding back from? What ways am I not scooting myself up to the table? And when we look around and think, ah, oh, they, they, look at them, they're getting more, they're getting more, maybe that's what they need. Do I know what they need? Do I know what deficit perhaps they've been living in, in their ego, in their, in their hearts, in their minds? No, I do not, but God does. And here's the other thing. If I just don't pay attention to what anybody else is being paid, but pay attention to what work I am doing and what is fair for me to be paid, then I don't have to think about any of the rest of that. I don't have to think about it. <sighs> Do you think that's possible for you? It's not an easy task. Our culture has brought us up to go, oh, oh. Uh, he got more, she got more. He got the chocolate one. He only left me the vanilla one, or vice versa. Everybody, when they are fully aware, awake to their oneness, to our oneness, fully in the love that they are, then nobody gets anything but perfect love. And what could be wrong with that? So here's another one. <clears throat> this is in Matthew 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Whew. Yeah. And here's the deal. That has been interpreted by fundamentalist religions to mean you go judge, God's going to judge you. You just wait till the judgment day. You're going to find out. You're going to get yours. Have you ever had that thought? Long past the time I actually believed in a physical heaven and hell, every once in a while I would just have a thought that kind of hope there's a hell because I'd like to see my grandmother's face when she wakes up there. Yeah, that's humanity. That's, that's how ugly, that's how low we can be. And I had that thought because I saw how deeply she hurt her whole family and the generations to come by what she did. Now, I do not even have that thought anymore. It never even enters because what I see when I think about, when I look at the past, when I think about my grandmother, I see a person who was desperately in need, did not know that love was hers for the taking and spent her life trying to take from everybody possible and to put down the, everyone around her so that she could feel a little higher than somebody. Nobody does that because they already feel good about themselves. They do that because they don't think much of themselves. And so with the eyes of compassion, the eyes of compassion, the whole world can change. And this idea of by the same measure you judge others, you will be judged, guess what? No one's doing that to you, that's what you do. That's what you do. We feel the most justified in judging someone else when we say, well, I would never do that. And so they're bad if they do. We've also said, I am bad if I do. And so, because most of us do bad things from time to time, <laughs> like every day, we either have to raise the bar on ourselves or start telling lies and rationalizing to ourselves what's really going on. And that takes us further and further and further away from ourselves, further away from the truth, further away from the love. Because if you're making up a lot of excuses or rationalizing something you have done, you probably wouldn't need to do that if you already felt really good about what you did, <laughs> right? So that doesn't mean you're bad, but it means if you live that way, you can condemn yourself day by day by day to living with that, that cloud of guilt. Don't, you don't look at it, but it's still there. You can feel it on your shoulders. It attacks you when you're trying to sleep. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so we have the opportunity when we feel that, when we start to rationalize, when we start to feel jealous, when we start to feel envious, we have the opportunity to say, wait a minute, where am I not being compassionate? Where am I not being compassionate? And how am I not being compassionate toward myself? Because it's really hard to be compassionate toward others if you're not compassionate toward yourself. And it's really hard to be compassionate toward yourself if you're not compassionate toward others. I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg, but at some point you have to break into the circle and go, maybe things are not as I think they are. Maybe my judgment is not righteous judgment. Maybe it's just self-righteous judgment. <laughs> which is really different. Righteous, actually, we hate that word because it has so many connotations from um, a fundamentalist Christian upbringing. 
Um, but it just means doing it the right way. <laughs> That's all it means. But self-righteous is, I did it, so I'm going to find a way to make it right. <laughs> Not, I'm going to do the right thing. And we see this played out on the world stage in politics. But if we're honest, we do it ourselves. This idea that I'm a good person, therefore everything I do must be good. Or is it, I'm a good person, therefore I need to do everything good. You know what I mean? We don't justify what we do by deciding, oh, we're this wonderful thing. If we, if we believe or decide we're this wonderful thing, then we need to practice wonderful. We need to practice wonder. We need to practice love. That's all it comes down to. Every week, basically, I say the same thing. I have to come up with really ingenious ways to keep saying, it's all about love. <laughs> it's all about love. That's what it is. So this is um, that first verse, do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Or this is a different translation, which I really like. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless of course you want the same treatment. <laughs> that critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wow. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Hmm. So this is a realization that I came to, I think I've shared before, but um, at, when I went on the Big Sky Retreat last year, and last fall, as you all know who are around, was the year that I overcommitted myself unto death almost. <laughs> And I was exhausted, and I was tired, and every single thing I had agreed to do was a good and wonderful thing, spiritual things, musical things, things that people need my skills and ask for my skills for. And so I said yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and then I got more and more and more miserable and slept more and more poorly and lived with more and more anxiety. Am I going to be able to do this all? Because what I found out is when I was young, I did and could do this all, but I don't bounce back the way I did. I don't bounce back the way I did. And so while I'm going through all of this, I had this sudden realization. Am I being who I am and sharing that with the world? Because that's a pretty good way to be. Be who you are. Don't hide. Don't hide your skills or your talents or your gifts what you have to offer, be who you are. So am I being who I am, or am I trying to prove to others who I am? This came down on me like a ton of bricks. Am I here because it's mine to do, or am I here because I want people to know that I'm good at this? And I had to really ask myself that question. And that is my question 
ongoing for the new year. When someone says, can you, will you, are you going to again this year, I say, wait a minute, do I really have a desire to do that? Is it something that's, that my spirit is welling up and going and, and having a big yes to? Or is it coming from a place of, if I don't go this year, maybe they'll forget me? Or, oh, they haven't asked before, so if I say no, I won't be able to show them how wonderful I am. Y'all, I'm sharing my deepest, darkest innards. This is, we all think this way, though. It's not just me. But for me, it's been a huge shift to go, oh, I get to be who I am, but I don't have to prove who I am to, to myself or to anybody else. Think about that. Because that's what this whole thing about the, the, the workers in, in the vineyard is about. The workers, instead of just doing their work and knowing it was good and doing what they agreed to do from the beginning, right? They wanted to prove, they wanted from outside themselves somebody to say, wow, you did so much better than everybody else. Here, I'm gonna give you more. And when that didn't happen, they were very upset. How, how, many, how many times do we get into this on a daily, weekly ba basis? Sometimes on a momently basis. How come they got that and I got this? Are we being who we are? Sometimes we're not being who we are. Sometimes we're hiding ourselves under a bushel. And if the answer to that is, oh, I need to be who I am. I need to not hide my light. I need to shine. Great. But if the answer is, I know who I am, but they might not know who I am, so I need to show them. That's a different question. That's a different question. Lastly, and I just love this. Basically, I'm skipping a few verses, but basically what it says is God doesn't play games with you. That's not what's happening here. If your child asks for bread, do you trick him and give him sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? This is... And although I had been on the spiritual path in many ways, a watershed moment for me was when I found I was pregnant. I was still in that place where heaven and hell were very real for me. But I suddenly knew that this being growing inside me, I would never cast it into hell. Never, 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 no matter what it did. I'll just call it she, because that's what it turned out to be. No matter what she did, there was never a time I was going to say, oh, well, that was your last chance. I love you. That was your last chance. And I went, how, if God is our parent, how could that even be possible? Because human parents are not perfect. But if you're really God, shouldn't your love be perfect? Wouldn't your love be perfect? Yeah, and I chose to believe that. And the, the little subtext to that is, and if it's not, I don't want that God. That's not who I'm going to give my notice and attention to. That's not the God I want to learn more about because I'm scared of what it will do. 
I want to learn more about the love that makes it so that no one is cast out. And I believe in this. And here, continuing on, here is a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. Love thy neighbor as thyself, in King James. And one more quote, Matthew 6. In prayer, in prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others and yourself. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. So here's the deal. If I'm in hell, God did not put me there. It was not God's judgment that put me there. It was my own judgment that put me there. Because when I feel guilt, when I do what I know I shouldn't do, and then don't provide myself an avenue or a way to forgive myself for it or to change, then I cut myself off. I cut myself off from God's good. God never cuts me off. Love never stops by its very nature. It doesn't have an end. Okay, it's love, but that's all. Love is something that goes on forever. It's unconditional. It's extraordinary. It's the greatest power in the world. So if I'm not in love, it's me that's holding me back. And so back again to the altar. If I'm feeling not in love, I can go within and say, okay, who is it I'm not forgiving? Is it me? Is it somebody else? Is it the world that I think is not fair? And how can I change that in my mind to understand the truth that all of the law and the prophets are simply for me to love as I wish to be loved? And as soon as I do that, I am in no doubt that I am loved. Thank you. Do a little meditation. Let's take a deep breath. Hmm, that was a lot. It was good for me. I know y'all don't experience jealousy or envy ever. So with some humor, we're just going to take a deep breath and know that whatever we've been telling ourselves about lack of love or not enough, not good enough, not right enough, all the ways we compare, as we breathe out, we just begin to let that go. Another thought of not enough comes up and we let it go. And we focus our minds, our thoughts, our attention, our breathing on love. And as we breathe in love, perhaps we want to know more about the nature of it. If it is nurturing, it is love. Therefore, 
You're being loved with every breath you take. If it is life-giving, it is love. If you're alive, you are being actively loved. Take that in as the truth. Love is expansive. So if in some way we are contracting, we simply turn our attention to the fact that if there is one tiny dot of love in us, and there is, all we have to do is give it our attention, breathe into it, expand it, let it fill us. And as it fills us, let it just take away or transform anything in us that is unlike love. And as we do this, we can say to ourselves, I am breathing love. I am living love. I am expanding love. I'm being expanded by love. I am whole in love. I am worthy in love. I am held and nurtured by love, in love. And the more we come to believe this, the more we practice this knowing, and it does take practice, the more we recognize ourselves as conduits for a greater love than our human selves can imagine to flow through. And when we recognize that we can allow the very love of God, the love that is beyond our understanding, once we realize that we can allow that to flow through us, into us, and flow out to others, that any thought of not enough, not doing it right, whether it's about ourselves or another, begins to leave us without our effort. Of course, a miracle says, without your effort, the Holy Spirit will go before you, making straight your path and leaving in your way no stones to trip on and no obstacles to bar your way. When we are truly living in that love, life becomes easier, not because things in the world get easier, but because we are come to a place where we realize we don't have to prove anything. We have only to be the love that we are to the best of our ability. And the best of our ability at any given moment on any given day is enough. And 
as we practice, we can expand it. We are enough and there is more. Can you breathe that in for a minute? I am fully enough as I am right now, right here, changing nothing. And as I practice that awareness, that enough awareness, I grow. I have more to give. I expand, I heal myself, and I heal the world because that's what love does. I don't need to prove it. I just need to do it. And so once again, we come back to the room that we're in. Sitting in these cumbersome bodies. And know that every cell is only there because of this powerful energy of love, which we call God or divine presence or whatever. The name is not important. The love is important. That's what we're here to learn. That's what Jesus the Christ came to teach. And so it is. Amen. Amen.